You're listening to the Outright Proud Podcast. I'm Andre Duplessis and UN Program Director. At Outright International, we work together for better LGBTIQ lives. In this episode, we will be talking about the advancement of LGBTIQ human rights in sub-Saharan Africa with our advocacy officers and partners. Here they are. You're the ones on the ground. You engage with our community members on a day-to-day basis. Tell us a little bit about the impact that these reckless actions and words have on LGBTIQ lives. I think a lot is happening in different parts of the world, you know, whether you are looking at what is happening in the Americas, in Africa, in Asia, in Pacific Island, and also in Europe. But one thing that is consistent uh, and that we are very clear of, there's a lot of human rights violation that we continue to record, we continue to bring to the attention of authorities, of governments, but these violations also go unaddressed. These violations go without even redress for that matter. And I think it's why even earlier I'm saying we need to reflect on the relevance of UN because we have always known our governments and their attitude and their action. We are expecting that from our governments. But when governments are organized and they are together, all of them, some who are allies and some who are not, but they are now even worse than that. These, um, you know, social experiences are what is happening everywhere with little redress, little justice. And I think this is where you see an enabled conversion practice, enabled violation, state-funded, you know, backlashes, religious-funded backlashes. You know, everyone who's anti is even now more organized. As, you know, why you are saying earlier that we came out of COVID with, you know, what happened? Did we go sleeping or not? You know, and we didn't. <laughs> you know, we didn't go in hibernation. We, we went literally and came back to, we are in a different world. And that different world, we know that it existed. But we thought the world was getting better. And this is why when you actually reflect, even on the program that was supported by the Netherlands government through Outright, you know, which was implemented in the three countries, in Nigeria, in Kenya, and as well in South Africa, we see similarities. We see similarities of when you look at conversion practice, did it exist? Yes, it existed. Did we name it that? No, we didn't. And it gave us an opportunity to really name it, give it a face, give this violation a face. And unfortunately, that face that is violated, again, it's a face of a queer person. It's a face of an LGBT person. Who violates this person? Families are involved. Traditional leaders are involved. Religious leaders are involved. Psychologists where we're thinking that our minds will be safe. No, they are the worst involved. So you actually now are 
going into a much more nuances of saying in the past when you reflected, you said societal institutions are a bit of a problem because of religious fundamentalism and all of that. But now, even the health professionals who are supposed to make us feel better, they are not. So, so it is why we see what we have done even with the previous data that was collected even before the conversion experiences experienced by LGBTI people. You know, we have data that we released, which we call the Levels of Empowerment Studies, that revealed 74% of LGBTI people are victimized in school, 60% in communities. In the workplace, you have other data that reveals all of this. Now, in 2016, we released another report called Love Not Hate, Mm -hmm. But we also now got in that report that says 88% of LGBTI people in South Africa do not report any violation that goes, that they experience. That makes it out of 25 LGBTI person, only one gets to report. Now, you can actually see the correlation. And then when you look at the conversion practice reports, that tells you that how many people, which is then up to 50%, of LGBTI people have experienced conversion practice. That's why we did not know, because people did not want to report it. Mm-hmm. You know, justice was never there. The hopes of being yourself, you know, has always been between the closet and the bedroom, you know. And, and we have been contextualized in that manner, that our identities, our existence have been reduced mm-hmm. to sex, who we have it with, how we do it, and those gatekeepers we've spoken about earlier, they are actually saying that you're not going to have sex in this way. And we're going to watch it, and we're going to watch you like hawk dogs, like watchdogs. And, and they are doing it in African streets. They are doing it in New York streets. <laughs> The gatekeepers. (laughs) (laughs) Even black on black ones are there. (laughs) So (laughs) we're going to watch you. We want to go into the bedroom with you. We want to see it. (laughs) You know. Oh my God, Uh, Steve! Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. That was that was funny. But yes, the effects of this rhetoric to the lives, I mean, of LGBTQ plus people and the and love, yeah, of LGBTQ plus people on the ground, it's really, really unfortunate that our lives, our realities are things to be contested, right? Like you wake up in the morning and you're the topic of discussion in the whole country, you know, and it's debates on Twitter, debates on TV, newspaper articles about your life, right? What this does to the psychology of someone, what what this does to, and I really worry about young LGBTQ plus people who are coming out and coming up at this time where two, three years ago, it was okay to march in the streets of Nairobi and go to court. And now... It's just like vile, vile statements, members of parliament and politicians saying terrible, terrible things about communities they know nothing about. What that, what that does to the psychology, the confidence, the self-esteem, the way a, a child looks at themselves, right? 
it's it's an, a, a toll that will take a lifetime to undo. And then the other thing this does is conversion therapy practices, going back to that. Because now parents, for example, who, even if it's not coming from a terrible place of them being violent and being homophobic, the fear that is being instilled, right? Because we had a politician say, we are not saying these people should not have rights. We are saying we have a camp where you can come and be changed too. So even the rhetoric is starting to, even the way they're speaking about the queer issues is starting to sound very copy-pasted because this is very right-wing American, right? It's like the copy, the hate is what is is very anti-African. The hate is what is Western. Looking looking like at what is happening right now, I can't wait to read the stories they write about this time, about this period in the world, about this period in Africa, and how they'll be referring to us and how they'll be referring to these right-wing fundamentalists who are literally just like hateful white people. It's colonization, Remy, like you were saying. It's neo-colonization. They found a few weaklings. They're like, you know what? These are our champions. And it's sad that Nigeria and Kenya are leading. (laughs) (laughs) It is so embarrassing. It is so embarrassing. My organization, Galk Plus, does security response, which technically, in a nutshell, means that we respond to cases of violations that target LGBTQ plus people across the country. This project of ours has become, especially since 2023 started in Kenya, my goodness, and for the wrong reasons, where reports every day, evacuations every time, people having to be relocated every time, we are responding to a lot of cases targeting LGBTQ plus people. And all of this can be tied back to that rhetoric. When people stand up and say homophobic, transphobic things about a community they don't know, people they've never met, the real impact is on the actual lives of these people. So when we stand and tell them the things that you, the hate speech you're making in parliament has a direct relation to somebody being murdered in their home, they might not see it, but we as activists see it. We as organizers see it. So the lives of queer people in Kenya have been gravely affected. And I can only imagine that this would be the same in the other countries, for example, Ghana, Zambia, where these laws are threatening to be introduced. Definitely in Uganda, where we had people migrating on the status of LG, uh, of SOGI because they were being discriminated against based on their sexual orientation, gender identity, and running into Kenya. And now we have Kenya where it's becoming really, 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 really a terrible place to to exist in. So yeah, the correlation is there. I feel like they're trying to push us away. They're trying to make our organizing difficult. That is even when we register, they're upset about it because they want to push us so far into the margins that we can't organize, we can't associate, we can't... The next thing they're going to come for is our funding. And I can put my money on it. The next thing they're going to do, they'll be like, where are you getting your money and how can we make that difficult for you? Because this registration is a step towards that because they know that if you can't register, you can't fundraise, right? So the next thing they're going to try is that and more and more push us back into... Into, into the margins of society. And I'm so glad that we are right here having this conversation because as leaders in our movements, as leaders in our organization, 
it's time to 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 arm our people and to arm ourselves and prepare for a battle because we definitely are not going down without a fight at least i'm not like <laughs> they will try to take me down but i will not go down without kicking and screaming and scratching and it won't i won't make it easy for them thank you so much Eve. <laughs> funding they will come for your funding if you look at the Ghana law if you look at the Uganda law anybody who associates with the queer community is essentially going to be criminalized as well uh, if you look at the Ghana law again and you look at the Uganda law these allow for conversion practices to be carried out on LGBTQ individuals but also these negative rhetorics and this really this hateful speech that these people are talking really push individuals to a space of self-hatred and internalized homophobia. And the one thing that you all found in the reports that you did is that individuals are going to seek out these harmful practices because they just want to fit in. But it's sad, but it's the reality of what we, we have found on the ground. Remy, I will turn to you for impact Nigeria. Nigeria is not easy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to reflect very quickly on something you said about language justice. I think you touched on it very briefly when you talked about how the anti-gender movement are opposed to things like intersectionality. Language is a very, it's a huge part of our activism. It's the way we express the work we do. It's the way we communicate with the middle, movable middle, right? So it's not something that we could, I mean, the anti-gender movement is very critical about language justice. And... <laughs> And why I'm bringing this up is because one of the impacts of LGBT discrimination in Nigeria has been around language. And I'm going to quickly touch on the constitutionality of LGBT rights. The Nigerian constitution has carefully excluded any right that has to do with sexual orientation or gender identity. The entire constitution is completely silent on what LGBT rights. This is generic, fundamental human rights. And even though LGBT plus persons are humans and the only condition to enjoying fundamental human rights is their humanity, even though that exists, it's almost like we need to do more to deserve the same fundamental human rights that is so freely given to every other person. And why I'm really touching on this is because when we look at the rhetoric around African or LGBT plus rights being on Africa, it also boils down to language. When we talk about conversion practices, language is evident. You look at talk therapy, you look at parents trying to convince that their kids to change their sexual orientation or conform to the gender binary. Language is a powerful tool, right? If you look at even when LGBT plus persons try to access healthcare, it is still language. It's, oh, I cannot touch someone who looks like you, or you look like an abomination, or you must come from the devil. I mean, language and words are so powerful. The impact of discriminatory laws on LGBT plus persons is really about language. For someone to want to commit suicide because someone else has talked down on them or they believe like they don't deserve the same right, it still comes out to language. So really, I think we need to start 
re-strategizing on what we're going to be negotiating at the UN, what we're going to be negotiating at the African Commission, because at the end of the day, this is actually the core of what LGBT plus persons have to face in fighting for their fundamental human rights. Thank you so much, Steve, Eve, and Remy. And now as we wrap up, what are your final thoughts that you have for our listeners today? What do you want our fellow listeners to take home with them after turning off this podcast? For final thoughts, I just have two points. One is it is not the duty of LGBT plus persons to prove their humanity to anyone. They are human and so therefore deserve fundamental human rights. The second thing I'm going to say is discrimination is only going to continue to exist if activists stop working and we don't look like we're tired we don't look like we're stopping anytime soon (laughs) we are even more hungry so yeah we're gonna keep doing the good work eve over to you the first thing i'd like to say is just because they're coming for lgbtq plus people now just because they're coming for trans people now does not mean that any other rights or any other minority people are safe if you keep quiet now and because you, it's very easy to look away because you're not a trans person. You maybe don't even know a trans person in your life. So it's okay to look away when, when they're coming for trans women. Next, they're coming for sexual reproductive health and rights. After that, they'll come for minority tribes in our country. After that, they will come for Muslims. So my advice would be to stand with us. It's a plea. When they're being unfair, it's unfair. And you should not look at injustice and look away. And to LGBTQ plus people, it's really, really a terrible time to be queer in the world. It's a terrible time to be queer in Kenya. But just hang in there. Hang in there. Like, we will get to the other side. Steve, over to you. I hate bystanders. I hate people who select. And I know hate is a very harsh word, but I'm going to use it anyway. People who select what solidarity looks like. If people can fly 16, 18 hours or even five hours or two hours to go to Madagascar and want to feed a child who's hungry, and it's a form of solidarity which we know because poverty and hunger is real. But when it comes to LGBTI activists who are kept in jail, hungry, cold, And nobody flies. Nobody stands. For me, hypocrites, complacency is irritating. So I'm not going to sugarcoat a language of human rights belongs to all human beings. And that, if everybody stands for human rights, they better stand for human rights for all. Thank you so much to my wonderful speakers today. Thank you, Steve Letzike from Access Chapter 2 in South Africa, Ivo Dwar from Gulk Plus Kenya, and Remy Makinde from the Initiative for Equal Rights in Nigeria. This has been a wonderful, wonderful discussion. <laughs>